in the book of Genesis chapter 2, what it says is that the Lord God brought the woman unto the man. And I believe that God divinely orchestrated that marriage right there with Adam and his bride. And I, just as, just as sure as I believe that about Adam and his bride, I believe that about me and my bride. She's been gone for almost the last two weeks, and I'm telling you, I'm a nutcase without her. I mean, it is just, I'm, I'm a trip. I'm just telling you, God knew what He was doing when He put the two of us together. Except for in one case. There's something about me. I, I, I would have been a, I would have been a, a, a good, you know, Old Testament Jew in the fact that, you, know, you remember, I mean, they're in bondage in Egypt, man. I mean, they are being beaten, you know. I mean, they're going through all of this and they, they work morning, noon, and night. And I mean, it, it is absolutely horrendous. They get out of that and they start talking about the onions and the garlic back in Egypt. Oh, if we could just go back to Egypt and get the onions and the garlic, you know. And there's just something about me that loves onions and garlic and that whole deal. You know, I moved into this area and and basically you guys know two spices. Salt and pepper, you know. That's like a beginning, Amish cooking. You know, I mean, salt and pepper and there you have it, you know. And I mean, that's a start. You know, I mean, you, you get in the starting gate with salt and pepper, and then the fun begins, you know, throwing all that stuff in. And while that's true of me, my wife has got the most incredible sense of smell you have ever seen in your life. Now, I'll be with the boys, and we'll be at a restaurant, and we'll be working, you know, the onions and the garlic and all of that stuff. I'll push my garage door opener, the garage opens. She's in the kitchen, and somehow or another, she's already smelling it. Because I know that it must be the case, because, and I've got to walk upstairs in our garage to get into the kitchen. I know more. Open the door, she's saying, where'd you eat? I mean, it's like she could smell me coming down the road, you know. She has got this tremendous olfactory sense about her. And there's a lot of ways that she's a lot like Jesus, and that happens to be one of them, because the Lord also has an incredible sense of smell. And I know that sounds weird, but what we're going to see this morning from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, is that the Lord smells something. He smells quite a bit, but He knows this. He knows that somebody's been eating somewhere where they shouldn't have been eating. And all the way to the, from earth to the portals of heaven, <laughs> he's smelling it. And it's all wrapped together in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 with the seven letters that our Lord wrote to seven churches. Now these were real churches that existed in 90 A.D. when the Lord inspired the Apostle John to record them. These letters addressed real needs and real situations that were going on there. But as we've seen, when you put these seven letters into the whole of the book of Revelation, what you begin to see is that these letters represent seven periods of church church history that pick up historically around 90 A.D. with the death of the apostles and take you all the way to the rapture, which is found immediately as the seventh church is ended, or the the letter to the seventh church is ended in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 22. The rapture is found in chapter 4 and verse 1 of the book of Revelation. 
And based on the content of the seven letters bringing us up through the history of the church, that event, the rapture of the church, could be found taking place on this planet literally at any moment. Even before this service is concluded, that, service, that, that event could take place. And people say, yeah, but people have been saying that for years and years and years. In fact, people have been saying that for centuries and centuries, and that may be true. But there has never been a generation that could look at the fulfillment of all of the content of these seven letters like we can look at them. They've not been able to see what we are able to see this morning sitting here in 1997. Now, one of the things that you need to make sure that you understand, if you're ever really going to get to the point to where you understand your Bible, there's a very simple point that you've got to make sure that you understand. And though this, this point is so extremely simple, the fact is most Christians somehow miss this simple little point, and the point is that God has a plan. The Bible says that God is the God of history. History is moving somewhere. You know, God doesn't wake up in a new world every day and, you know, it's not like, you know, He got up this morning and said, I wonder what today is going to hold. No, history, as we have talked about in this church, history is His story. Okay, but understand this. While God is moving to accomplish His plan through history, God's enemy, Satan, has some plans of his own. And as you, as you trace the, the unfolding of, of history biblically, what you find is that basically Satan's plan revolves around God's plan. He either seeks to counter the plan of God or he seeks to counterfeit the plan of God. But ultimately what he is seeking to do is to confound the plan of God. He wants to shut it down. He wants to make sure that it is not accomplished. Okay, Jesus Christ came to this planet. What He came to this planet to do, one of the things, was to establish His church on this planet through which to accomplish His plan for that 2,000-year period of the, church, uh, of the church age. And what we've seen over the, the last several weeks as we've been making our way through these letters that Jesus wrote to these seven churches is that in the first three centuries of Christianity, Satan was seeking to counter the church. That is, he, he was coming against it, blasting it with persecution and, and tribulation and death. But what we've seen is the more he sought to kill it, the more it what? The more it grew. But while he's doing all of these things physically, coming against the church to counter it, he was just as busy in those first three centuries. And don't miss this. He's coming against it physically, He's trying to stop it, but all the while, he's also working behind the scenes in a spiritual way in an attempt to counterfeit the working of God. He was moving to establish his own church. But remember, it's a counterfeit. So it doesn't go by the name, the universal church of Satan. You get it? It goes by the name the universal Christianity. Because it's, it's a counterfeit. And you see, by, by counterfeiting it, what he can do is he can use that to draw people in and make them think that they're okay. Make them think that what they are embracing is true Christianity because it uses the name Jesus a lot. And, and it uses a lot of religious-sounding words and it it does a lot of religious-looking stuff. And we saw last week in the letter to the church at Pergamos, 
how Satan actually pulled off this counterfeit church. And you'll notice that there's been a progression. Back in verse 9 of chapter 2, look at the end of the verse, Satan gets a synagogue. He, He develops his false religious system to counterfeit Bible Christianity. That's what that's all about. He gets a synagogue. Uh, his false, counterfeit, religious system to counterfeit Bible Christianity. At the beginning of verse 13, he gets a seat in that synagogue. And, and some of you do well to look at your Bible right now. Why, why come if you're not going to work here? Okay, He gets a seat in that synagogue. In other words, it's established now. And by the end of verse 13, he's dwelling there. He sits down in it. And verse 14, from his chair... From his seat, he speaks ex-cathedra. You remember what we saw last week? What ex-cathedra means? It means out of the chair. From that seat, from that chair, he propagates his false doctrine. Verse 14 identifies two of them specifically. The doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And that brings us now to the next period of church history, the Thyatira church period. And you'll notice in verse 18, this is Roman numeral 1 on your outline, our Lord commissions the writing of the letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. And the Thyatira church period, which of course is outlined for us in verses 18 through 29, it runs from approximately 500 A.D., which really marks the beginning of the Dark Ages, And it goes to around 1000 A.D., to the beginning of the Crusades. And one of the things that we spent quite a bit of time on last week is the fact that the name of each one of these churches is significant in the fact that somehow, in the sovereignty of God, the names of these seven cities in Asia Minor that were literal places, which had literal churches in them, which our Lord wrote literal letters to to address real situations that were really taking place in 90 A.D. when our Lord dictated these letters to the Apostle John. And yet what you find is that the names of each of these seven churches is representative of the main characteristic of the church during that period of church history to which that that letter represents as you look at that thing from God's perspective. In other words, with, with the names of each one of these churches, God is actually giving us a one-word capsulization of each of the, the periods of church history from His vantage point. And when it comes to the Thyatira church period, the name Thyatira means odor of affliction. Now check this out. Our Lord in heaven looks down at this period of church history and He describes it from His olfactory senses. He he describes this period by its smell. This period of church history is is producing an odor. And it's the odor of affliction. And and you'll remember as we came through the the Smyrna church period several weeks ago that the the word Smyrna means bitterness and death. And we saw how that, that was a period of unbelievable persecution and bloodshed upon Bible believers as as pagan Rome dominated the world and it was absolutely bent on stamping out the Bible and anybody who named the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we went into that transitional period last week, the the Pergamos period. Pergamos meaning much, much marriage. It's from the word which we get our word polygamy. And this is the time in the Pergamos church period 
when the church, tired of being the persecuted church, the martyr church, it married the world, it married the pagan Roman system, and it becomes the Roman church, the universal Christianity, or the Catholic church. And what we saw last week is God is outlining for us in the letter to the church at Pergamos the fact that what was taking place there is Rome was simply changing its clothes. Nothing was really changing about Rome itself. It just changed clothes. And instead of being pagan Rome, who would control the world militarily and politically and governmentally, it simply becomes papal Rome to rule the world religiously. And by ruling it religiously, it ruled it militarily. It, It simply became papal Rome. So, so there's a, a, metaphor, a metamorphosis that takes place during the Pergamus church period. And now that we're in the Thyatira period, instead of Rome imprisoning and, and, and beating and stoning and burning and torturing and murdering Bible believers because they wouldn't embrace the gods of paganism, now in the Thyatira period, now Rome is imprisoning and beating and stoning and burning and torturing and murdering Bible believers because they won't embrace the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. And God lets us know that this was one of the chief characteristics of this time period, that the earth, from His vantage point, was filled with an odor of affliction. An odor of affliction upon Bible believers. And that smell had reached His nostrils. And I want you to know something. We talked about back in that, that Smyrna period. We saw it in the Pergamus church period. How that prior to, to Constantine coming to the throne and with his phony conversion and all of those things that we went into last week, that prior to that time, the most horrendous things were being meted out on Bible-believing people just like you and me. Remember we talked about the fact that invention was exhausted to come up with another way to to persecute people who believe nothing different than what you and I believe in this room this morning. And listen, I'm, I'm telling you, in light of all of those atrocities that were done during that period of time, none of them, none of it, is as terrible as what began to take place during the Thyatira and Sardis church period under papal Rome. Oh, it was it was horrendous under pagan Rome. It didn't touch the hem of the garment of what would take place upon people who believe exactly what you and I believe in this room this morning, meted out by papal Rome. And God looked down into that period and He called it Thyatira, the odor of affliction. But that's just one side of the coin. I think there's an opposite side as well. The word Thyatira comes from two words, one meaning sacrifice and the other meaning continual. And as we get into the content of this letter this morning, you'll see as we're moving along that our Lord describes in pretty graphic detail the counterfeit teachings flowing out of this of Satan's false system during this period. And the teaching was this, that Christ didn't actually finish the work of salvation on the cross, but that from that so-called, what they call a work of grace, that's what Jesus did on the cross. It was simply a work of grace. Now, a man must continue to sacrifice through such things as the sacraments and prayers for the dead and and burning of candles and on and on and on. And and, and these are things that must be added to, to, to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. 
And it is that counterfeit system of religion that during this time period comes to be called Christian. And it dominates the world. This is the time in history that is commonly referred to as the Dark Ages because what took place here is when Rome came to power religiously through that universal Christianity, that false religious system, the lights went out. The Bible says in Psalm 119 and verse 130, the entrance of thy word giveth light. And folks, this is very simply and plainly the time when the Roman Catholic Church dominated the world. The Bible was taken out of the hands of the common man. It was against the law to own your own copy. They told you you'd go crazy if you tried to interpret this book apart from their system. And in light of that, and when you, when you begin to see that, it's real easy to understand the second point on the outline, the character. The, what, what we saw here is that our Lord introduces Himself in each of these letters by giving some aspect of His character. And He says in verse 18, These things saith the Son of God, who hath His eyes like unto a flame of fire, and His feet are fine brass. And again, what our Lord does as He introduces each one of these letters is He gives some aspect of His character that the church in that city historically and that, that period of history prophetically needed to be reminded of. Look, look back at verse 8 of chapter 2. To the bitterly persecuted church of Smyrna, our Lord reminds them, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Here's a church that was being martyred for their faith in Christ. And he says, listen, I want you to know, I'm writing to you as the one who was dead and is alive. You don't have anything to fear. I've already conquered death. The worst they can do is kill you. And look at verse 12. In the Pergamos church period, Satan is going to work to set up an authoritative church with the Pope as its head. And so as Jesus writes the letter to this church, what he does is he reminds them of his place in the church as its head and the place of His Word as the final authority for all matters of faith and practice through the church. He introduces Himself by saying, These things saith He which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And now, verse 18. In the Thyatira period, listen, listen to this, a time when Mary has taken the place of prominence in the Roman system she is now being referred to as the Queen of Heaven, the Mediatrix, the Mother of God. And listen, if Mary is the Mother of God, then that would make Christ the Son of Son of Mary, right? But look at how he addresses this letter. These things saith whom? The Son of God. And watch this next part. Who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now this is the way that John described the Lord back in chapter 1. Go back there. When he explained what he saw, when he saw the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And folks, this is where a lot of people get themselves messed up. All they know of Jesus are those pictures of this you know, cute little effeminate guy with long flowing hair and, 
and cute little eyes and all of that stuff. All they know is that, that he was the meek and lowly Galilean who went about doing good. He who was the, from the city of Nazareth who gave us the example to do unto others as he would have you know, do unto you or whatever, all that stuff. And they have no idea that the Christ who came to this earth as the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world, which Song of Solomon chapter 5 and verse 12 said, had eyes as the eyes of a dove, and they were, they were set like they were, in, in, they were in milk. They have no idea. Most people on this planet do not understand that right now, that meek and lowly Lord Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He, at that throne, He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And if you as a sinner this morning were to come face to face with Him as the glorified and risen Son of God, those eyes would pierce right down into the very depth of your soul just like an x-ray penetrates into your body to expose what's within. And listen, those are eyes of righteousness. Those are eyes of holiness which automatically sets them at variance against everything that is evil, everything that is unholy, everything that is sinful. And those are eyes of judgment. Those are the same eyes that John describes that our Lord is going to have when He comes at His second coming. Go over to Revelation chapter 19. At the time of His second coming, the Lord Jesus Christ comes and He says in chapter 19 and verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and He that sat upon Him was called Faithful and True. Let me tell you something, folks. What He exposes in your life on that day, it is going to be true. You know what? When He exposes the sin on this world and every person who is on this planet at that time that doesn't know Jesus Christ, what He exposes in your life, every bit of it will be true. You're not going to be able to deny one single thing. Those are eyes that are faithful and true. Verse 12, they're eyes as flames of fire. Those are the eyes of the glorified Christ. Eyes of judgment. And not only are they eyes of judgment, but feet of judgment as well. As the feet of fine brass also suggest. Look at what happens at the end of verse 15 when he gets off that white horse. And his feet of fine brass touch this earth, and he treadeth the winepress wine of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now folks, in those days... The wine press was where the grapes were placed, and it was kind of like, a, you know, a little kid's swimming pool, you know, a little wading pool kind of a thing. It had little walls all around it, and what they would do is they put all of the grapes inside of there so they could get the juice out of them. And you know what it was that pressed the wine out of them? Men would take off their shoes. They'd wash their feet and legs, by the way, and they would walk around the wine press on those grapes until that whole thing was just running two to three feet deep in grape juice, and the juice would then run out of the little spigots into leather pouches all around the outside of that thing. You know why the Lord Jesus Christ has feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, it says? It's because when He comes back in judgment on this earth, He is going to land on the heads of 200 million United Nations military men and he is going to squash them like tiny little grapes and Revelation chapter 14 and verse 20 says that their blood will run three feet deep down through the dried up riverbeds of Palestine for 200 miles. Now you check it out. 
I mean, that's what is going to be taking place. Let me tell you something, folks. You don't want to come under those feet of judgment. You have no idea who you're dealing with. You look at those little, you know, I'm just telling you, most, most young people, they deny Jesus Christ because he's a wimp and they have no idea who he really is. And a lot of adults do the very same thing. We're always going around talking about the, the good news, the gospel. And you know what? People don't give a flip, do they? You know why? Because in order for good news to be good, you've got to understand bad news. The bad news is he's coming back to this planet and when he does, he is absolutely ticked off. And I'm telling you, he's going to get what he deserves on that day. And everybody else is too. And so, boy, hey, there's real good news, but it ain't good until you understand the bad news. Turn back to the book of Isaiah for a second. Isaiah 63 Who is this that cometh from Edom? And you know where Edom is, folks? It's where the nation of Israel is going to be during the seven-year tribulation period. It, strangely enough, is the same place Job was when he went through his tribulation for, count them, seven days. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? And Basra, of course, is in Edom, right along the King's Highway, which is the route that Joshua, the Old Testament word for Jesus, took when he led the children of Israel through the Promised Land, which is the same exact route that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take at His second coming. That's what we're dealing with here in Isaiah chapter 63. So the Lord asked, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in His apparel. You see, He's not coming veiled this time. He is coming in full power and glory in His apparel. John said in Revelation 19, 13, and He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And you'll see who's in just a second here. In verse 16 of Revelation 19 says that on His vesture there's a name written. You know what that name is? Do you know what it is? King of kings and Lord of of lords this is that glorious apparel traveling in the greatness of his strength so who is this i that speak in righteousness mighty to save that's who and then here comes another question wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat and here's his answer i look like someone who's been treading in the wine fat because verse 3 I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. And folks, listen, if you take that passage literally, it'll, it will literally make your blood run cold. But you see, since that's not the Jesus that sells books, and since that's not the Jesus that packs people into rooms, and since that's not the Jesus that makes you feel all good about your sinful lifestyle, what Christianity in the last days has done, is they come to passage like this and says, well, this is figuratively now. And if they don't do that, they avoid the subject altogether, which is what most Baptist churches on this planet are doing right now. 
oh, we wouldn't take something like this figuratively, so we just won't talk about it. But listen, it doesn't matter what anyone wants to say about it. This is all going to happen. And it's all going to happen literally just as you find it here. Why, Lord? Verse 4, for the day of vengeance is in my heart. Well, you know, that's, that's that Old Testament deal, you know. No, it isn't. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament, chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of God, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe. You see, that's the rest of Isaiah 63 and verse 4. And the year of my redeemed is come. Listen, for almost 2,000 years, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ has been mocked, it has been ridiculed, it has been scorned and blasphemed and reproached, and God's people have been beaten and stoned and whipped, their tongues have been cut out, their eyes have been jerked out of the sockets, They've been tortured and murdered. And for 2,000 years, God's redeemed people have longed for that time when finally both Satan and Jesus Christ get what they deserve. Jesus Christ finally gets the glory that He deserves on that day. And He crushes, according to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 3, He crushes Satan with His fine or His feet of fine brass And what he finally does is he gives Satan, after all of this time, he gives Satan what he deserves. In Revelation 20 and verse 3 says he casts him into the bottomless pit and he shuts him up. But not only do Satan and the Lord Jesus Christ get what they deserve, everybody else on this planet finally gets what they deserve too. Every bit of sin, every bit of sin, every bit of mockery, it is all going to be meted out on that day. You know what? Have you ever thought about this, y'all? The only ones that don't get what they deserve is us, the redeemed of the Lord. There's not anybody in this room that if you got what you deserve this morning would get anything this side of hell. Eternal destruction and damnation. That's what every single one of us deserve. But there came a day in our life when we turned to Jesus Christ. We called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. And we came to Him by faith in what He did alone. And because of that, We ain't getting what we deserve, but every single other person on this planet will, including Satan, including the Lord Jesus Christ. We get to rule with Him for a thousand years. Verse 6 of Isaiah 63 says, And I will tread down the people in Mine anger and make them drunk in My fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. You see, it's different this time. No more meek and lowly lamb. Jeremiah 25 and verse 30 says, the Lord shall roar from on high. You know why He's roaring? Because at that time, He's not a lamb. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Jeremiah says, He shall roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon His habitation. He shall give a shout as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. And people say, well, you know what? I just don't... You know, if, if this guy ever shuts up this morning, I'll never come back to that church because I don't like all that hellfire and damnation stuff. 
When I go to church, I'll tell you what I want. I want a positive message. Then let me just tell you something. As you're going out the door, throw out half of your Bible because at least half of it is a negative message directed to somebody. And you know, usually the way that this thing works out is the people that don't like the hard stuff are the people to whom it's directed. And what you need to understand this morning is that the most positive message you could hear today is some message that would put the fear of God down in your soul so that you could humble yourself and call upon His name to save you and, and you obey the Gospel of Christ. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 says, Now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And listen, it doesn't get any more positive than that. But you just don't hear a whole lot about that today. And that's why some of you still have refused to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because who cares? Well, buck up against what we've been talking about this morning. Let's see who cares. And that's the Jesus that's writing to the church in Thyatira. And you see, once you see what was going on in this period of church history, oh man, you understand exactly why those eyes of judgment and feet are ready to trample out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Do you understand that's what that song's all about? They've got it all screwed up about when it's coming, but that's what that song's about. We, we, oh, glory, glory, hallelujah. You know what that is? Exactly what we've been preaching about today. Just nobody cares. Nobody knows because nobody talks about that anymore. Look at verse 19. Roman numeral 3 on your outline. The commendation to this church. Now, now keep in mind, by the time we come to the Thyatira church period, there are two distinct groups of people calling themselves Christian and claiming to be the true representation of the body of Christ on the earth. One of them you can trace back through the book of Acts to the church at Antioch where they were first called Christians. And one of them you trace back through Rome, back into the book of Acts, into Alexandria, Egypt. And historically, it's very easy to trace. The line that is coming out of Antioch stays true to the Word of God and to the work of Christ. And the line coming out of Alexandria is corrupt and it is a full-blown religious system that comes to be called the church, but it is really the satanic counterfeit. And as Jesus looks into this period with those eyes as flames of fire, obviously, He sees both. And He makes reference to the true line, the Bible believers, out of Antioch in verse 19 in His commendation. And we'll read that in just a second, but I want you to notice also that it is also the true line that He's making reference to in verse 24 and 25 when He says, look at this, Verse 24, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, or the Thyatira period, as many as have not this doctrine, that's the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, that verse 20 calls the doctrine of Jezebel, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. Now all of this is that true line that those Bible believers there, he's addressing them there, and also in verse 19, look at what he says. He says, I know thy works in charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. And man, what a blessing verse 19 is. In the midst of some of the most atrocious, inhumane afflictions, here were these Bible believers. And man, look at that first thing. They're working. They're not retreating. They're not sitting around licking their wounds. 
they aren't sitting around feeling sorry for themselves. And if all of this would change, you know, we could really accomplish something for God. No, it doesn't matter. They're working. He says, I know thy works. And though they're being accused of being unloving because they wouldn't leave the Word of God to unite with the state church, look at what John says. Jesus says, He says, Oh, hey, I know your charity. I know you love me. Because I know you love my Word so much that you wouldn't compromise it for the sake of anything, much less some unity that, that is, is not centered on the true teaching of the Word of God. And though I, I know you hate every false way, Psalm 119, 104, I know you hate every false way because you love my Word, but I know you love those people who have been blinded by Satan in that system and been trapped in that, that false religious system. So listen, don't worry that they accuse you of being unloving. You hear in that church? I know. I know thy charity. I know what you really love. And I know your service. I see the ministry that you have. And oh, I see your faith. And oh, guys, don't you know the faith it must have taken to stand for Christ back? And oh, man, we don't have a clue, do we? And then he says, and I know your patience. He says, oh, listen, I know that it would have been easy to get tired and throw in the towel and quit fighting the current of your day. And Oh, folks, I hope you're seeing this because as time goes on in these last days and we really begin to understand what it really means in 2 Timothy 4.3 when it says that in the last days that men will not endure sound doctrine. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 that those times in the last days will be perilous in 2 Timothy 4, 1, or 1 Timothy 4, 1, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And folks, when all of this comes to fruition upon us, our comfort is going to be that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, with His feet of fine brass and His eyes as flames of fire, are looking down upon us, seeing our works and our charity and our service and our faith and our patience. And listen, if He sees it, and if He knows, then who cares what the world thinks? Amen? And who cares what the world says? And who cares what kind of persecution they mete out upon us? If, if that be the case, so be it, as long as He knows. And notice at the end of verse 19, He commends them for their works again. And then He adds, and the last to be more than the first. Now check this out. This period of church history is a good 500 years long. And listen, you would think that by the end of this, this period of being hunted down and having your property confiscated and, and being so severely persecuted and after all of this time seeing it generation after generation after generation, you, you would have thought that they would have gotten to the place where they didn't think that it was worth it anymore. And that you would have thought that it kind of would have gotten to the point that after a while they began to fizzle out. And I mean, at least it would have slowed them down. But Jesus looks down into that period and He says... Your works at the last part of this period are even greater than your works at the first part. Even in the midst of some of the most horrendous and difficult periods in the entire history of the church, their works increased as time went on. They didn't get discouraged along the way. And then let's look at the condemnation that our Lord gives in verse 20. He says, Notwithstanding, 
I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest, which is the old English way of saying allow, because you allow or sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now you'll notice the last part of the verse is identical to the last part of verse 14, which was our Lord's condemnation upon the church during the Pergamos church period. Someone committing fornication and eating things they shouldn't have been eating. Eating things sacrificed unto idols. Now the only difference here is that the system was called the doctrine of Balaam in verse 14 in the Pergamos period, and it's called Jezebel in Thyatira. And you can see that there's been a progression. Jezebel is now recognized as a prophetess and a teacher in the church, and she's seducing people into her bed to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Those are two things, folks, that Satan loves to seduce people into doing. Committing fornication and committing idolatry. Because you see, he knows how deeply those two sins blaspheme the name of God. And listen, that's why in the New Testament, that's why God takes the stand that he does about fornication. I mean, if you were just to take your New Testament and just look at fornication, and if you were to run a composite of what he says about that sin, Acts chapter 15 and verse 29 says, abstain from it. Acts 21 verse 25 says, keep from it. 1 Corinthians 6, 8 says, flee from it. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 says, avoid it. 1 Corinthians 10, 8 says, don't commit it. Colossians 3, 5 says, mortify or kill it. And Ephesians 5, 3 says, don't let it once be named among you. Why? Because God hates it. That's why. And some of you ought to listen up this morning because some of you, you come to this church... You call yourself a Christian and you commit that sin. Figure. And I'd love for you sometime, I'd love for you to take your Bible and show me how you know on the authority of this book that you're a child of God. I'd love, I mean, I'd pay you money to find it. Find it for me. But obviously the fornication he's talking about here is spiritual fornication. But understand, God views both of them the same. I mean, if anything, spiritual fornication may be worse because it'll damn your soul to hell where the consequences of physical physical fornication will just make your life here on earth hell. But nonetheless, in either respect, it's serious and God hates it. Now obviously, this woman Jezebel in verse 20 is not a, a literal woman in the church in Thyatira or a literal woman in the Thyatira period. A woman in the Bible, when it's used in reference to religion, is always a picture of false, organized religion. Did you get that? It's always a picture of false, organized religion. You miss that picture and you'll never really understand the teaching of the book of Proverbs as it talks about the strange woman. Oh, listen, fellas, there's a lot of strange women out there who will mess up your life But that strange woman, doctrinally, in the book of Proverbs, is organized religion. And you see it all the way through the Proverbs. She seduces men into bed with flattery. And you see, that's what every religious system in this world is bent on doing. Flattering you. You understand that? 
Every religious system in the world, somehow or another, it's going to come around to something you do. Something you do to either get yourself saved or something you do to keep yourself saved. But listen, when you are faced with true Bible Christianity, it won't flatter you. You know what it'll do? It will flatten you. Absolutely flatten you because... Here come those those eyes as flames of fire that pierce down and expose the fact that we are all Christless, godless, hopeless, helpless, covenantless sinners. And that we are incapable of offering anything to God or or doing anything to merit a a standing before God. Being able to do anything to earn or deserve some kind of a, 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 a place before God. True salvation comes to a person who says... Oh God, I know I don't have anything whatsoever to offer You but my sin. And I know that You are the only one who can do anything with it because You as God in human flesh took my sin upon You on the cross so that in return I might have Your righteousness. And I beg You for the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin. You see, You are just absolutely humbled. You're absolutely flattened before Him as opposed to religion. And if you do this, then God will know. Just mark it. It's a false religious system. Jezebel. And Jezebel is a key female religious leader, a prophetess who caused all kinds of problems for God's people back in the Old Testament. And now listen, he identifies this religious system as Jezebel here in Revelation 2.20 in the Thyatira period so that we'd go back and find out what she was all about so we'd know what this Thyatira period was all about. So let's take a minute to just go do that. Turn back to the book of Judges, chapter 18, for a minute. Now, obviously, I'm not going to be able to bring you through every jot and tittle of everything that's going on back in in Judges 18, but there's a few things that I want to call your attention to. Make sure that you don't miss. Now, listen very, very carefully as we go through this. Now, in Judges chapter 18, look look at the first three words. In those days, somebody tell me what the context is already. The tribulation period. Every time that you see that phrase in the Word of God, it is is setting the context for you, letting you know those days. You know, know, when those days come, as those days of tribulation. Okay, a time when there will be no king in Israel, by the way, but he'll return on a white horse at the end of the movie to save the day. And, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. You know, I, I don't want to give the, the, the punchline away on, on old Jesse, but as we're going through this Judges 18, I, I don't want you to miss any of the morsels that, he's, that God drops along the way here either. But if you don't know this, now listen very carefully. If you don't know this already, you need to make sure that you realize Realize that as we seek to stand, and the Bible has called us, according to Ephesians chapter 6, to stand, to withstand in the evil day. We're living in the evil day, okay? You need to understand that in these last days that we're living in, that the one world religion of the Antichrist during the tribulation period, which is referred to in Revelation 17 and 18, the religious system is referred to in those chapters as a woman. And... Those same chapters define the woman as a city. Listen, a city set on seven hills 
or seven mountains, which of course is Rome. That passage says, whose colors are purple and scarlet, who is drunk on the blood of the saints. And when you put it all together in Revelation 17 and 18, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that it is a definition of the Roman Catholic Church, which is called Jezebel, just as we just saw there in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. And again, you need to make sure that you understand as we make our way through Judges chapter 18 here about what that system really is. Okay, now the context is set for us in Judges 18 and verse 1 with the phrase, in those days, a biblical reference to the tribulation period where there be no king in Israel. And you'll notice that verse 1 begins to talk about a specific tribe in Israel. Do you see it there? Which tribe? The tribe of Dan. Now there's something you need to know about the tribe of Dan. And God has already clearly laid this out in His Word. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 17, the tribe of Dan is called a serpent. Genesis 49, 17 says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse's heels so that his rider shall fall backward. In Deuteronomy 33 and verse 22, God said of Dan, Dan is a lion's whelp or a lion's cub. Okay, so now take those two things and run those through your biblical computer for just a sec. He's called a serpent and a lion. What, what is Satan called in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1? A serpent. What is Satan called in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8? A, a lion. So here you have Dan, a picture of Satan during what period? The tribulation period. And in verse 4, the tribe of Dan gets a young man to be a priest for its tribe. And look down at verse 19. Look at what this priest is called. They call this priest, you see it? Father. And look at verse 20. The priest called Father uses idols as a part of his worship. And you'll notice in verse 28 that they settle up by Zidon, which Jesus referred to in the New Testament as Sidon. Okay, that's up where the Phoenicians live. Genesis 10, 19 tells you that's where the Canaanites settled. Now last week, we went into quite a bit of... Ta- uh, uh, detail about the Tower of Babel religion, which all centered around a supernaturally born son and his quote-unquote holy mother. Do you remember that? The son was supposedly the sun god named Tammuz. But remember what we saw? God came down at the Tower of Babel and he did two things. He scattered the people and he confounded their language. Now listen, in the area up in Canaan and Phoenicia, where Zidon is, the name of the sun god from the Tower of Babel religion is called Baal. Now you see that name all the way through the Old Testament. And now listen, folks, it's nothing more than the Phoenician name for Tammuz, the sun god of the Tower of Babel religion. Now collect the pieces that we just saw working our way through here of what the worship was of Baal, the sun god, in the Phoenician area. The components of that worship in Zidon, it had priests who were called fathers who used idols as aids in their worship. Okay, now keep that in mind and turn over to 1 Kings chapter 16. Now in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 29, you'll notice that Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And check out his epithet in verse 30. 
It says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Now, folks, I'm telling you, that is quite a statement because there were some majorly wicked kings before him. And verse 31 lets you know what this guy's problem was and why he was so evil. Look at the middle of verse 31. He took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. Now, you know what the name, the Hebrew name Jezebel means? It means Baal exalts or Baal is husband to. Baal exalts. Baal is husband to. And you know what? Look at what her father's name. It's F. Baal. You know what that name means? With Baal. And you know who F. Baal, Jezebel's father was? Look at it there in verse 31. The king of the Zidonians or the king of Zidon. Hey, we just read about Zidon and we just read about the worship that was going on up there. We just saw what that was and watch, watch the power and influence Jezebel had on her husband Ahab. The end of verse 31 says, He went and served Baal and worshipped him. And you don't have to turn over to it, but just listen to chapter 21 of 1 Kings and verse 25. It says that there was none like unto Ahab, listen, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. Revelation 2 and verse 20 uses the word seduced. And that's what she did with her husband. Verse 32, he raises up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, verse 33, he makes a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Listen, that's the influence of this satanic woman on this king of Israel's life. Here he is, selling himself out to follow a satanic, counterfeit religion with priests called fathers who use images as aids in worship. Ding, 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 ding. And not only does she seduce her husband into this idolatrous and, and, and spiritually adulterous relationship, look at it. She in, it seduces the entire nation of Israel into following Baal. You, you see, it had just been the tribe of Dan, one of the ten tribes in that northern kingdom, but she's used to seduce virtually the entire nation. And that's why over in 1 Kings 18, and, and turn over there if you would, Elijah, the prophet of God in verse 18, he comes and he gets in King Ahab's face. And Ahab called Elijah a troublemaker in verse 17. Do you see that? And he called him that because God told Elijah back when Ahab first started worshiping in this pagan religion with its black-robed fathers who worship with idols. And, and Elijah comes along and he says, Ahab, I got news from you, from God. I, I, here's the news, pal. It ain't going to rain anymore. And so here's Ahab calling the one speaking the word of God a troublemaker. Sound familiar? And in verse 18, Elijah says, Hey, I'm not the troublemaker, pal. You're the one. And that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and thou hast followed Balaam. And Elijah says, Hey, but we're, we're bringing this thing to a head right now. He, he says to Ahab in verse 19, 
Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel into Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal 450 and the prophets of the groves 400 so there's 850 in all which eat at Jezebel's table. Now you're checking that out? These guys, all these prophets, they are supported by Queen Jezebel. And folks, it's a historical fact. These black-robed priests who are called fathers have always had a close communion and connection to kings and queens in the earth. And notice verse 20. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And you know why all the children of Israel are there for the big showdown, folks? It's because all of them had been worshiping Baal with all of his priests that are called fathers. Hey, they all knew these guys. You understand that? They, they knew all these prophets, man. They were part of that system. They played bingo with them on Thursday night. They went to confession on Sunday morning with these same guys. Verse 21, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. And the reason they didn't is because if they opened their mouth, the crow that Elijah was making them eat would have flown out of their mouth because they were all guilty. Every stinking one of them. Now turn back to Revelation chapter 2. Now, with that as a subtle little backdrop, verse 20 is going to be real easy to understand. Our Lord writes a condemnation to the church in the Thyatira period. And he says, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants and to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And here's what you don't want to miss, folks. Okay, this is on your study sheet at the top of page number three if you're lost. Okay? In the Old Testament, Satan used a literal woman called Jezebel to bring... Baalism in to pervert the true worship of God in Israel. Okay, you got that? In the church age, Satan used a figurative woman called Jezebel to bring Roman Catholicism in to pervert the true worship of God in Christianity. But the thing that you can't miss is that the reason that the Lord calls this system Jezebel is that it is the same exact system. You understand that? Baalism of the Old Testament is Roman Catholicism of the New. The Jesus of Roman Catholicism with its black-robed priest called fathers who use idols as aids in worship in their house of gods, it is not the Jesus of the Bible. It is the Jesus of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 4. Another Jesus who is proclaimed through another gospel and is received through another spirit and is preached by what that very same passage calls false apostles and Satan's ministers. And that is some strong stuff. And I realize, folks, that people in this day and age don't like that kind of stuff. They think it's not necessary. They get all upset. And again, my suggestion is rather than you getting all jerked at me, my suggestion is... When you walk out the door, yank out Revelation chapter 2, Judges 17 and 18, 2 Kings 16, and 2 Corinthians chapter 11 right out of your Bible. Take it up with God because I'm just telling you what He said. It's not my book. It's His book and His claim upon my life according to Acts chapter 20 and verse 20, uh, 27 is not to shun declaring unto you, listen to it, all the counsel of God. 
How do you come to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20 where it talks about Jezebel and all of a sudden we put our tail between our legs and act like that's not what the Bible is saying. It is what it's saying. It's His book and it needs to be proclaimed. And look at what Jesus says in verse 21. He continues His condemnation. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. You, you see, this, this fornicating system was actually established back in verse 14 during the Pergamos church period. So the space of repentance was from 325 to 500 A.D. Now, folks, I would say God has been real patient, wouldn't you? But now He prophesies the certainty of judgment in verse 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. She wants a bed? And people want to commit fornication with her? You know what God's saying? Okay, this is what she wants. I'll cast her into a bed. And them that commit adultery with her into the great tribulation except they repent of their deeds. Now, there, there's actually two prophetic fulfillments in, in this verse. One of them has to do with the fulfillment during the tribulation period. Our, our Lord is saying here, I'm going to take this woman Jezebel and then they commit adultery with her into great tribulation. And of course, that's what Revelation 17 is all about. Turn over there real quick. Revelation chapter 17. Now notice in verse 1, this is the judgment of the woman Jezebel that the end of verse 1 calls the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And verse 15 lets you know what those many waters are. Look at it. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. You see, this lady has been riding shod religiously over the world, not only through the turbulent dark ages, but she is going to do that same thing during the tribulation period. You see, that's why I told you earlier that she is the one world religion of the Antichrist. People want to get all wondering about, well, I wonder what that one world religion is going to be. Hey, it's Revelation 17, y'all. It's Jezebel, and we've already identified what that is. Look, look back in the middle of verse 3. She's the woman who sits upon the scarlet-colored beast in the tribulation period. The beast, of course, is the, the Antichrist. And Jezebel, as Revelation 2.20 calls her, the great horror, as Revelation 17.1 calls her. Mystery Babylon the Great, as verse 5 calls her. The mother of harlots, verse 5 calls her. Listen, they're all terms used to refer to the Roman Catholic Church. And Revelation 17 is when she will be judged during the Great Tribulation, which is defined biblically as the last half of the seven years of tribulation, or in other words, the last three and a half years. And we didn't have the time when we were back there in the, in the Kings for me to show you this, but now listen very carefully. Because what it does in 2 Kings chapter 9, what it does is it shows us the judgment of that literal woman Jezebel back there. And what it defines there, now listen, Jezebel was thrown down out of a window. She fell to the ground and she literally splattered all over the street. And by the time they could get downstairs to bury her, it said that the dogs had eaten her up and there was nothing left to bury. Now check this out. In that same way, during the tribulation, Revelation 14, 8, and Revelation 18, 2 and 3, says that this woman Jezebel, which is called Babylon and Mystery Babylon, she is going to be thrown down and will fall to the ground. Look at verse 18, or verse 2 of Revelation 18. Babylon the Great... Who is she? You got it? It's Jezebel. It's fallen. It's fallen. 
For all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And verse 21 adds, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon, again, which is that same woman Jezebel, be thrown down, look at it, and shall be found no more at all. Just like the literal Jezebel in 2 Kings chapter 9. No more at all. My, my, my. Isn't that interesting? And folks, I'm just telling you, what we're seeing here this morning, in light of what we talked about in the Sunday school hour, and I realize a lot of you folks weren't here, but listen, in light of what we're talking about here and what we're seeing, the Word of God is, 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 is accounting for us. What this ought to do, folks, is this ought to break our hearts for the one billion people on this planet. I'm not talking about who have ever lived. One billion people on this planet right now are trapped in the very system that we've spent all morning talking about. You understand that? They think it's Christianity. And something ought to, oh my goodness, something ought to grab somebody in this room and says, you know what, I'm going to one of those nations and I've got, man, I've got family members that are trapped in that system and I'm going to pray to God, I'm going to fast until those people come out of that system. I'm going to beg God for their soul and I'm going to try to show them what true Christianity is all about. Hey, it's one thing to talk about Babylon falling and all of that stuff, but these are folks that we love and know, y'all, that are trapped in this system. And I turn back to chapter 2. You see, that this is what we're seeing there at the end there. This is what verse 22 is talking about. Jezebel and all that commit adultery with her will be cast into a bed and into the great tribulation. And the certainty of judgment continues in verse 23. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. And of course, the futuristic fulfillment of this in the tribulation period, it's obvious. But what's interesting is the historic fulfillment of the great tribulation that he says would kill her children with death. Historically, this would be the plague that swept through Europe during the Dark Ages, the plague that was called the Black Death or bubonic plague. It's called the Black Death because when it kills you, most of the time it causes your face to become black after you're dead. And boy, you want to talk about a plague. Listen, during the 1300s, nearly half the population of Europe was killed by an epidemic of the Black Death prophesied right here historically for you in the book of Revelation. Now that's the condemnation. The next three will come quick. Notice Roman numeral 5, the correction. And the judgment that we just talked about in verse 22 is certain unless one thing happens. At the end of verse 22, the Lord says, except they repent of their deeds. And we know historically, because we can look back on it now, we know they didn't. That was the only hope they had. The correction that the Lord Jesus Christ wrote to those trapped in that system was to repent. Now listen, a lot of people want to talk about how great the Reformation, you know, it was just an awesome thing and all of this. And it was, if you really know what was happening during the Reformation. Hey, we're going to cover that next week when we in the letter to the Sardis. But notice here that the Lord's correction wasn't to reform. You see that? The Lord's correction wasn't to reform. 
That wasn't what the Roman Catholic Church needed. It needed to repent. It needed to get saved. Reform has the idea that at one time it, it had it right. It's never had it right. It's always been married to the pagan system of Rome. It's always been a counterfeit. And it didn't ever need to be reformed. It needed to repent. Notice the challenge in verse 26 through 28. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And this is a reference to the second coming of Christ. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That's exactly what Revelation 19 says. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers. In other words, broken to pieces. Even as I received of my Father. We already saw that. Stomp like grapes. And I will give him the morning star. Applied to the second coming of Christ, the morning star is Christ himself. Revelation 22.16 says, I, Jesus, am the bright and morning star. The second coming of Christ, for those who don't know him, is going to be a time of utter destruction. He comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance, and rules the nation with a rod of iron and casts those people down who have committed spiritual fornication with Jezebel. That's exactly what he's talking about. But for those of us who know him, he's the bright and morning star, and we will rule and reign with him over the nations. And then verse 29 is the call. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now don't, don't close up on me. Just keep your sheet right where it is. If you're here this morning, maybe you're a part of that, that system that we've been talking about. Now listen, I, I appreciate your graciousness in staying in this room this morning because I know that this has been tough. I appreciate you staying. But I don't apologize to you for the content because I don't know what it is going to take to shake people who are in this system. I don't know what it's going to take for them to be able to see it. Now folks, this listen, you've, you've got to do one of two things to the book of Revelation. You've got to wrongly divide it and make Revelation 17 and 18 pagan Rome back in the first century. And you see, that's the way the Roman Catholic Church does because they know, they know it's in their own writings. They know Revelation 17 and 18 has to do with Rome. And so what they do is they wrongly divide the book of Revelation to make that fulfilled. And you know what? You've got to destroy, totally destroy the book of Revelation to make that pagan Rome back in the first century. And none of those things happen. It is something that is going to happen. And it is all going to be fulfilled just as we've talked about this morning. And, and listen, what we've done this morning is we've taken you to the Word of God and I've shown you Jezebel as she was defined back there. It's the same exact system that we see in 1997. We are not down on Catholics. We don't hate Catholics. We love Catholics. We love their souls. We want to do everything that we can possibly do to reach them out of the system that they are trapped in that they think is Christianity. And the Bible says it's Baalism. It's the Tower of Babel religion. It's the satanic counterfeit. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ, oh, may the Spirit of God speak to you May you hear what the Spirit is wanting to say to you this morning. And to those of us who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, may it break our hearts. Now listen, I know we've been impassioned. It's be not because of Catholics. Do you understand that? It's because of Satan, the father of that whole system. That's where the fuel, that's where the energy is. It's not directed toward the people in that system. They are, they are trapped in that thing. 
And it ought to every, for every single one of us understanding that, that it's not just we're all going to end up in the sweet by and by someday. It ought to break our hearts to do everything that we can to reach the Roman Catholics in this system and all the way around the world. Some of you are committing physical fornication right now. And you know what? I'm telling you, you ought to deal with God before you walk out of this room. I mean, if you can see what the Scripture has to say about how blasphemous that is and you can continue on into it, I'm just telling you, I don't want to trade places with you when the rapture comes. And I'm not trying to scare you into anything. I, I just, Man, I hope the Spirit of God wears you out with this this morning and just shakes some of you into holiness as we've been called to walk with God. Let's stand together.